Will you stand with me as I read Mark 10, chapter, I mean, chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. <clears throat> Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Blake. What's that verse say again, church? If you want to be great, you must become a servant. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to uh, take, uh, we're going to step out of our series on the book of Romans just for one morning. We're going to hit Romans chapter 9 tonight. So if, you, uh, if you're following along in that study of Romans, you'll want to be here tonight as we look at Romans chapter 9, one of the, uh, the, the pivotal passages, uh, texts in Romans, part of that heart of Romans uh, series of chapters 9, 10, and 11. We're going to hit Romans chapter 9 tonight. This morning... We got to see something uh, really wonderful for our church family to see how God has raised up some men to be servants, special servants, to lead in service, to model service, to, to take care of the, the service business of the church for our church family. And it's also a great opportunity for us to think about what it means for each and every member of our church family to be a servant. And so we're going to begin with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into the study of, of what it means to be a servant. Father, we're grateful for the life that You give us in Christ. That life is precious and that life is special. And not because it's made enormous, but because it's made appropriately small. That our life, Father, is, is, is useful and significant because of how it reflects Your presence and Your Gospel and how it, that life is, 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 is part of Your will and part of Your plan to expand the borders of Your kingdoms throughout the entire world. We pray, Father, that we will always be modest and humble before You. And that we will not, uh, that we will not uh, fall back from times where we are put in uncomfortable situations, knowing that, that You lead us into those places, Father, to serve and to bring a blessing to people, but more than anything else, to bring glory to You by revealing Your, your nature through our service. Bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Father. Turn toward You and be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a story, and I don't think that it's apocryphal. I think it's probably a true story. It involves Muhammad Ali, a great boxer and a longtime heavyweight champion of the world. He was uh, always referring to himself in the, uh, the, uh, the uh, first person. You know, Muhammad Ali is the greatest. And he would always say, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. In fact, it became his signature description of himself. I am the greatest. Well, the story is told that he once got on an airplane and when the flight attendant asked him to put on his seatbelt, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant said, well, Superman don't need no plane. 
Here's a question for us to think about, to ponder this morning. The question is this. What does a great person look like? What does a great person look like? I would offer as an answer to that question a, a teaching moment in the life of Jesus. Uh, down towards the end of His life, not, not at the very end, but towards the end, Jesus and His disciples are experiencing... It's actually not Jesus. It's His disciples are experiencing a moment of drama. One of the moms of the Zebedee boys, uh, Ms. Zebedee, has, has popped in and she has asked Jesus to make her sons the co-captains on the team. She says in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. She's asking Jesus, when you come into the kingdom, let my boys be right there beside you. Make them captains with you, one on your right, one on the left. And the other ten disciples, as this always happens, hear about it, and they, they hear this, they're a little indignant. Now the interesting thing to me is we, we think about this text, the interesting thing is that they are not disappointed in Mrs. Zebedee and her sons, James and John. And isn't it interesting that they're not fearful for the sons of Mrs. Zebedee in light of what she's asking for? Did those boys, did their mom, did those boys really know what they were saying when they said that they were going to be able to drink from the cup that Jesus is going to drink? Instead of, of being fearful for those boys or, or, or upset with them and their mother for the thing that they're asking, they're all indignant. Now, what does that mean? Well, the definition of being indignant is this. It's feeling or showing anger because there's something that you perceive to be unfair or something that you perceive to be wrong. Why are they indignant that they have asked the, 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 the mom of these two boys, why are the other ten indignant that, that they've asked for such a thing. It's because they thought they were the greatest. That's why they're indignant. It's unfair for them to ask because deep down in their own hearts, they're all thinking, well, you know, why shouldn't that place go to me? Why shouldn't I be at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus? And Jesus, once again, and this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that Jesus pulls them aside and gets them alone in order to reorient their thinking, in this particular case, about what it means to be great. And so he says in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's saying, think about the world that you live in. Think about the, the empire that we are a part of. The Roman Empire. And how their lords, how their, their rulers, how their, their emperors, how their leaders, how their political senators lorded over other people. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must circle that word. It's not an option. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now that's a very powerful challenge. That cuts across the grain of the typical human definition of what it means to be great. When you think about 
the definition of great in human conventional wisdom and, and the way that it is described and the way that it's portrayed in our culture, greatness means that I'm at the center of attention. Greatness means that all eyes are on me. Greatness means that I get my, atten- uh, I get my way all the time. Greatness means that I'm the one that gets served. Greatness means that I'm at the core of everybody else's life. But to the contrary, Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, if you are a disciple of Jesus, He says to you that greatness is in being a servant to other people. You are a servant. And if that's true, and it is, then it's important to know what it means to be a servant. Let me give you three things before we're done this morning. Number one, servanthood is a core identity of a disciple. In a manner of speaking, servanthood is synonymous with being a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of some is, is, is a person. It's a, it's a student. A, a disciple is someone who imitates the life of a teacher or a master or a lord. And so when Paul is thinking about all of the issues that he could be writing to the church of Philippi about, one that is at the very core of his, of his writing, that letter to that church, is an issue of what it means to, to, to be a church and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in that Philippian culture. And, and what it means to have the mind of Christ. And so he writes in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same, what? Mindset as Christ Jesus. So what Paul is asking them to do is to consider for a moment what that mindset of Christ is in order that in all of the relationships that you have with one another, this might be the way that you think about people and the way that you respond to people and their needs and the way that you react to situations and the way that, that you pray for people. He says, have this kind of mindset, the mindset of Christ, who being in the very nature of God, Paul is saying, you know, when you think about Jesus, the first thing that ought to pop to your mind is that in His very nature, at the, at the very beginning, He is God Himself. He is God the Father. He is God the Son with God the Father and God the Spirit. He is in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. And in some of the other translations, something to be grasped. Something to be held on to and grabbed and, and, and clenched fist hold on to. He did not consider that equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself what? When's the last time you got up in the middle of, of, of the night or sometime in the morning and you go to your prayers and this was a part of your prayer, Father, I pray that today you help me to become nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant which meant that he became like a human being in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now Paul is asking this church in Philippi to have a certain specific mindset. That is the mindset, mindset of Jesus. And he's saying when you think about Christ and you think about the incarnation, the greatest of all mysteries, how God could become a man... Jesus did not think that equality with God was something that that He should use to His own advantage, that it was something that He could desperately cling to. 
And in so doing, He became a human being. Not the Creator God of of the universe, but He became a human being. But not just any human. Jesus took on the form, the nature of a servant. I mean, God is staying God, but at the same time clothing Himself in, in flesh. He is becoming a human being. And when you think about it, I mean, God is coming to the earth in the form of Jesus. How would you expect Him to come? As some kind of a king, as some kind of a politician, as some kind of a rich man, a great man, powerful man. But when God becomes man, what happens is He becomes a servant. That word, very nature, is one word in the Greek language. It is the word morph. And it pertains to the deepest form of character. And so what what is happening is that Jesus is not just coming down and, and, and kind of taking on sort of the facade of a servant. What Paul is saying is that at the deepest core of his being, at, at the thing that makes him tick, is, is being a servant. And when you think about it, just how important was it for him to come as a servant? To humble himself like that and to become a servant. Could Jesus suffer the beatings and the scourgings, carry that cross faithfully, and die on that cross faithfully if He was only an incidental servant? Most of the time, you know, we struggle with with being pulled out of those comfort zones and we struggle with, with what it is that we're called to do sometimes in service. A, a great book, uh, The Life That You Always Wanted, that was written by a fellow by the name of John Ortberg. He writes, I think, something incredibly profound on this passage. He says, when Jesus came in the form of a servant, He was not disguising who God is. God was not camouflaging Himself or hiding behind you know, the, 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 the facade of service. What He was doing was revealing who God is. That God is a servant. That is incredibly important to embed in our bedrock foundational theology and understanding of God that our powerful, sovereign Creator is a servant God. That God by His very nature is a servant. We've all heard one of our shepherds, Everett Heiston, pray from time to time and to say from time to time in conversations and prayers and so on, Father, help me to be a servant even when I'm treated like one. That, I think, is is an incredibly profound and insightful statement in light of our culture. Too much of the time we are incidental servants. We can be servants when it's on our terms. We can be servants when it's within our comfort zones. We can be servants when it's convenient for us. Or we've got a window of service in our schedule. But what that means is that we are not servants by our very nature. When we are incidental, it is not by nature. And we are not to let anyone else in the world except Christ define what it means to be a servant. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something that to this day I think we all kind of struggle with to figure out what it is that He means and the extent of it and so on. But He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them what? Two miles. 
Now, I, I, I read all the time, as you know, and there's all kinds of interpretations of what it is that Jesus is banging away at and trying to get this, this understanding in the, the heads of the people, the disciples who have come there on the north side of the, the Sea of Galilee to listen to Him. One of the interpretations of this verse was this. If someone forces you to go one mile, then you go two miles, and that way you've taken power and you've taken control of the situation. Quite frankly, I wonder how that interpretation connects with what Jesus says two verses later. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the children. That is, reflect the nature and the character of your Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that the, the, the call to discipleship is a call to service. And the call to service is to be recognized in the parameters, uh, uh, in the model, in the example of Jesus who did not just leave equality with God in the sense of His place at the side of God in heaven to become a man, but He became a servant. And not just a servant, which would have been great because of all of the great things that He did, but He became a servant all the way to the place of what? Death. When Jesus says, somebody compels you to go one mile, go with Him the second mile, Jesus knows what He's talking about. Jesus, as a servant, as God, not clinging to that, but becoming a man, becoming a human being, becoming a servant, took it the second mile by serving all of humanity by dying on that cross. That's why Christ defines what it means to be a servant. And that's why God serves and loves people in in going the second mile. Number two, servants are not motivated by gratitude. You know, we serve and we serve and we serve, and sometimes we just get tired of serving because nobody seems to recognize it, right? Nobody seems to say thank you. And that's really a a terrible thing. I mean, as a church family, we should be really, I mean, our eyes. One of the things that happens when you become a disciple of Jesus is that God gives you a different set of eyeballs or a different set of glasses through which to see human beings. And when you see folks that are serving and when you see folks that are exemplifying what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we should encourage them. We should should use those pink cards. John Skipworth, uh, out of town right now. But if John Skipworth were here this morning, you know what he'd say? Find somebody that's doing something good and let them know how much you appreciate it, especially if it's service. But the flip side of that, we should recognize and say thank you and encourage those that are serving. But the flip side of that is that that's not the motivation to serve people. Showing gratitude and thankfulness is really a virtue. It's, it's always a virtue that recognizes the energies and the resources and efforts that someone has spent to bless you and to make your life easier or to show you love or to expand the universe of you know, your thinking and the way that you interact with other people. But it is a terrible motivation for service. You know, it's easy to be a servant when people make a big deal out of it. But what about the times when no one sees it? When it's truly behind the scenes? And what about the times when service is for a very, very long time and no one notices it? What about the times when no one seems to appreciate it? When nobody seems to recognize and to see what it is you're doing? Jesus tells a parable. In Luke chapter 17, he says, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. 
Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. One part of our prayer should be, Father, today help me to be modest and humble before You. Help me to become nothing. Another part of that prayer should be, Father, help me to be a servant today even when I'm treated like one. And then thirdly, servants recognize and understand what sacrifice is all about. read of a, a woman recently who had gone uh, into the doctor's office and discovered that there were some really terrible things happening inside of her body in, in facing really important surgery. And she asked her husband if he would, as I go into the hospital to, uh, to have this surgery performed, would you mind just taking care of the children? And he said, no. That he was going to a rally that would teach men how to be a Christian husband and father. You know, it's always easy to talk a good fight, right? But here's Jesus who comes into this crazy, look out for number one, dog-eat-dog world, and He lives the kind of life that no one has ever seen before. And just prior to the Scripture that, that Blake read, that, that, that Blake did out of Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells His disciples in verse 33 that the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That doesn't happen unless Jesus is humble. That doesn't happen unless Jesus sees the importance of His servants, His service to the will and to the plans and the objectives of God. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death. And they will hand Him over to the Gentiles who will mock Him and what? They will mock Him and spit on Him. And not only that, flog Him. And kill Him. Three days later, He will rise. Jesus' service to all of us comes at great cost. The Gospel that transforms our lives, the grace that comes to us, did not come because somebody became a, 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 a cultural icon in terms of, of power and prestige and, and, and fame and, and wealth. The reason that we are all here today with joy in our hearts and love in our hearts and, and, and the values of God Himself in heaven in our mind and in our soul is because there is one who became a servant and through His service broke us out of a destructive, toxic lifestyle that was about us. You go back to the original sin and what is it? You can be a what? God. You can be God. 
Don't stay modest before God. Don't stay humble before God. Don't stay trusting of God. Don't serve God, but you can become a God. Don't trust that Word that was powerful enough to make the entire universe. That Word's not powerful enough to trust. It took service to break us out of that toxic lifestyle in which we ourselves have become God in order for us to become servants. That is, to reflect the very nature of God. That the, 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 the explosive danger of, of having ourselves at the center of the universe has come to an end because there was one who was obedient and obedient to death. And He did so in order that His life might be a ransom for many. That His life might free us up from, from slavery to sin in order to what? Make us slaves. Make them the members of our body slaves to righteousness and slaves to God to reorient our life in the right direction again. And that's what happens when we interact with one another. We, we love each other. But that love is seen in how we serve one another and go out of our way to be a brother, go out of our way to be a sister, to go out of our way to be a servant, to go out of our way to be the embodiment of Christ to that brother and sister in this church family. And the same thing happens in the community. You want a world where everybody is out for number one and looking out for themselves and all of that kind of stuff. That, that you know, that it, just, it, it nearly becomes cliche, but everybody knows what we're talking about to live that kind of life. Imagine if, if Jesus in the... the the role of servant from the first century comes into our world today with all of the selfies and with all of the call to notice me and all the call to self and all the call to, to self-aggrandizement. Just how noticed would he be? He'd stick out like a sore thumb because he's telling people over and over again and living it at the same time that it's not about you. It's not about you. And we go out into that community with that kind of a mindset that says, you know what, God has blessed us with all kinds of great things. But you know what? The blessings don't nearly matter as much as the blesser does. And that blesser became a servant to, to a degree that I could never imagine. You know, I, I, you know me, I've got a, a pretty fertile imagination. I don't want to go in my imagination to the place where my sins took Jesus on that cross. But that's what He did. And in this kind of culture, to live that kind of a life that says, you know what, it's really not about me. And to back that up with love, sacrifice and generosity and more than anything else, the words of the Gospel that point us to the servant Christ, the servant God who died on the cross to, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our own sin and to save us from our own toxic thinking and has implanted in us His Spirit in order that we might be sanctified and be conformed to the image of Jesus and to experience every blessing that is promised by Christ. That makes a difference. We're going to have an opportunity to praise that God here right now. Ben's going to lead us in a song. and Some of our shepherds are going to come down to the front. These shepherds 
are eager to lead you to the Christ, to help you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that might be that they need to sit down and talk to you about how you become a son or daughter of, of God the Father, how you become saved, how you become forgiven, how you become a person that possesses a clean conscience when it comes to God, that you can sleep at night because all of that guilt has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And if that describes you, then allow the service of Jesus on that cross to bless you and benefit you today. Or it might be that there's some struggle that you have in, in your, your, your spiritual life as a disciple of Jesus, that you need counsel, that you need the prayers of the church, something that you're trying to overcome so that you can, you can live fully what it means when John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that we walk as Jesus walked. If that describes you, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They'd love to talk to you about any of these, these issues. For the rest of us, with love in our heart and understanding what God's service in Christ means for us, that's stand and that's praising. Lord, make me a servant. Lord, make me like you. For you are a servant. 